Hey there, and welcome back to another episode of Control-Alt-Azure. We're actually live from the European SharePoint Office 365 and Azure conference. And this episode is sponsored by Solvetto. Continuous learning is the driver for success, growth, and well-being. Learn or expire. Keep your Azure skills up to date by acting now and go to solvetto.fi slash pro. I'm Tobias. I'm back again with UC, like I said, live from the ESPC conference. That's why you might have a slightly different audio uh, output today, and we do apologize if that is interfering, but it is awesome to be back in person. What's up? Hey, Toby. This is amazing. We've been doing the podcast for three years, about 160 episodes. This is the first episode that we are recording live, face-to-face. -face. We're sitting in the same sort of cubicle. There's a glass wall so you might hear some echo but i think we can manage with this for me it's been a busy month we completed an azure tour in finland four cities four days i was exhausted i got to spend two days at home then we traveled to copenhagen denmark and we're spending the week here life is good uh but i'm sort of out of touch on the frequent travel now and back in the days when you traveled more it was easy, but I'm getting back the hang of it. But great to be here. What's up with you? Same, like seeing you in person for the first time in a long time. And as with a lot of other people were, um, like I shortly mentioned there at the ESPC conference right now, the SharePoint Office 365 and Azure conference. I live about 25 minutes away from Copenhagen where this event is right now. So that was an easy choice for me to go here and kind of revisit you know, the, the awesome vibe of this conference and also to meet up with a lot of people that I have not seen in a long time and also meet new people and make new acquaintances. So it's a lot about the people for me, a lot about the, the network. So in-person events, especially when I'm not a speaker anymore, is something that I've really missed. And I did not realize that until I actually got here. So it's a no stress kind of casual hangout for me this week. Uh, I'm learning a lot. I'm collecting a lot of stories from different customers on the cloud and their cloud journeys. So that's really interesting. But there is no, uh, no stress for me this year to deliver a speech, which is a bit of a change, but also a convenient and happy change. So that's up for me. Sounds, sounds good. So I am done with my first session of the week. I still have two more to go, one on Sentinel and another on Secure Score. I will, I will link you up with the presentation content when we publish this episode. So today we are talking about the lessons learned on zero trust in the past year. So we last talked about zero trust exactly almost a year ago during episode 113. So if you sort of want to get the high level view on, on zero trust, listen to that episode. But we wanted to do this sort of a quick recap where are we today, one year after sort of the, the big marketing and the big push for Microsoft started on Zero Trust? So as a super quick recap, what is Zero Trust? It's verifying explicitly all access user devices, using least privileged access and assuming breach, meaning no network is trusted in the sense that our home network would be trusted, let's not do something but the uh, bad internet is not trusted, let's do something else. So, Toby, before we actually dive into all of the topics and content we have for here, are you exposed to zero trust? Is it part of your life or is it something that you know will be 
something you pick up in the future as well? Uh, that's a great question. And I would say yes. And yes, it is something that I am exposed to. And it's something that's going to happen more off in the future. It's also something that happened in the past. So in, in my previous roles where we worked you know, actively with really like this mindset shifting left. So security becomes something that you start with earlier in the path, whatever you're doing if that is developing or if it's just operating your IT environment, shifting left helps a lot. And like the, the mindset and the mantra of assume breach, assume that there's already someone inside of your network. How do you now secure it? Because that is vastly different from saying we don't want someone to come into the network. So that means we can just set up the perimeter. But when you have this mindset like assume breach, which means you should treat everything like there's already someone on the inside. And now you need to secure all the assets that you have when someone already have access. And that's a lot trickier. So this is something I spent a lot of time on in a previous role. And I see it now with my current role as well, working for a bigger organization, bigger company, like everything we do is using like very well-reviewed conditional access policies. You have to be signed in with Microsoft Edge browser. Uh, so you have to be signed in to the actual web browser with your corp account, with your company account or work account. And then conditional access policies dictate that only Edge signed in with your work account can be used. And then it verifies explicitly a lot of things around your identity when you sign in and, and things like that. And every time I go to something that has SSO or, or single sign-on enabled, it's going to take you to the authentication form and say, hey, you know what? You need to re-authenticate. Even if that on your side just means you click the button and say, I'm already signed in, but you know, I validate that I'm actually here and want to sign in again or, or continue. So we do see a lot of that. And I think this is just going to keep on growing as a concept. So for me, like Zero Trust is, it's not a technology, it's not a, a single process, it's like a mindset where especially the assume breach part is something that really stuck with me when I worked actively on like securing the information and securing the, the operational uh, procedures we had and the environments we had in the cloud. So like a long reply to a short question, yeah, we're gonna see more about Zero Trust. We do actively exercise it both now and in the past. But I think moving forward, it's gonna be like second nature to most organizations where this is no longer an afterthought. So in the coming years, we're gonna see this being part of every single discussion we have with customers, as opposed to, we need to figure out security now because now we're in the cloud or have that as an afterthought. I really like this approach. So we both have our own laptops now in the same space. And my laptop that I'm using for recording this the fans just went on. So if you hear this faint humming sound, it's my laptop because I have Defender for Endpoint and it's a bit confused. Why are you in Copenhagen? Why are you using applications you don't normally use on your laptop? So it's sending a lot of telemetry back to the cloud. One thing on, on Zero Trust that, I, I, that, that really piqued my interest is from CISA, the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency in the US they have a nice definition of zero trust. So before I read this, this small sentence out, keep in mind that zero trust is not a Microsoft invention. There's been a framework being built uh, since 2006. So it's been already 15 years, but I think we sort of got confused with AI and IoT and MFA in between. And now we're sort of putting everything together with zero trust. So the definition from CISA, for zero trust is provides a collection of concepts and ideas designed to minimize uncertainty 
in enforcing accurate least privileged per request access decisions in information systems and services in the face of a network viewed as compromised. There's a lot of wisdom in here and, and it's really tightly packed. What I'll do is in the show notes, we put the links on, on whatever we mentioned today, but I will also add this sentence in the show notes because this is where I go back to when I think about zero trust and what I should be working on, that what are the different aspects in here. So we have a couple of lessons in the past year on what we've learned on zero trust. Let me start with the first one and let's see what we can think, of, think around that. A lot of the guidance on zero trust from Microsoft is related to just two things. Securing identities, implying endpoints as well, and securing Microsoft 365 workloads. There's not much stuff on Azure beyond the basic infrastructure and networks. But for stuff like platform as a service, on-premises, multi-cloud, hybrid, edge, there's not much. Any thoughts on this? Are you, Toby, seeing this the same? That for you, zero trust is more approachable to the securing the identities? Or are you seeing this differently? So I, I see that a lot. And, but I, I see a lot of new guidance coming up as well in different areas, both at Microsoft and outside where you talk exactly like the, the phrase you mentioned before, which is something like you should treat services and, and view networks as compromised, which is like the assume breach aspect. So I think just like with that, you know, a lot of organizations, a lot of frameworks, security frameworks, frameworks are talking about this now. And one thing that I'm seeing popping up, not just in Microsoft guidance, but you know, worldwide across you know, big organizations, regulatory frameworks is something that ties into that. And some of these are perimeter security. Some of them are identities and enabling MFA. I think we've talked about that several times on the show, the importance of enabling MFA, going passwordless, using a, a FIDO stick or something like that for authentication. But I do see that there's a trend of like zero trust covering more ground. So it's like, how do you protect your workloads that you deploy in Azure? How do you protect your infrastructure? And it's not just a firewall, but it's also what happens when that firewall is deployed. And that's the identities. When you have apps, you have user accounts, you have different types of identities making different requests to and from different services. How do you verify those every time or explicitly, uh, like as per the zero trust kind of mantra? And, and you see this now start to pop up in a lot of guidance where this is no longer an afterthought or something that like we deploy to the cloud and then you kind of deploy zero trust. That's not really how it works. So zero trust is like, to tie that into lesson number one here is, yeah, I think identities is something we see a lot and endpoints and like the 365 workloads, but we're starting to see a lot on the Azure side and there's in the cloud adoption framework and well-architected framework for Azure, for example, where there's starting to be more zero trust concept coming up as well. And I hope that this is an area that will expand a lot because there is really not something here called too much guidance when it comes to these concepts, because we we do promote, like worldwide, all the organizations and including Microsoft promote zero trust. And here's what you need to know about it. But for customers to be really successful, we also need to say, this is how you do it. Like this is how you should start thinking about it. And I, I, I am seeing a lot more of that. So, so that's really, uh, yeah, that's really a, a, real, a shift in how you see organizations promote their own security but also promoting zero trust as a framework or as something that you, you can use as a guidance. I agree definitely on this one. 
And, and it's funny, if I'm talking with a colleague of mine, he's approaching zero across through the identities and he's mentally mapping identities as belonging to M365 workload needs. I'm approaching to Azure AD and infrastructure and whatnot, and I see that as an Azure and Azure AD undertaking, and both are correct depending on the viewpoint. Okay, so for lesson number two that we've learned over the past, past year, Zero Trust is a bit like what DevOps was back in the day. You would meet with customers and they would say, hey, you see, we want a DevOps solution. You would ask, what do you mean by this? It's, it's more of a cultural change. It's not a product you deploy. Well, then, of course, Microsoft came up with the idea that Team Foundation Server needs to be called Azure DevOps. So now we have <laughs> DevOps as a solution. So Zero Trust, it's not a product deployment project, but you do need to deploy services in order to achieve Zero Trust. But I feel it more as a cultural type of, of an undertaking, but also as a sort of a guidance and best practice. How do we secure and will it fall under the umbrella of something called zero trust? And there's nobody telling you that yes or no, but typically the guidance from Microsoft and from CISA, they fall into the guidance of you should do this, you shouldn't do that. And if you are more on the green and less on the red side, then you can say, yes, we are zero trust enabled, but perhaps we continue this journey on and on. Yeah, yeah, I really like that. And, and I think that makes sense. And like you, you draw a parallel to this being like DevOps back in the day. And I remember with DevOps, we had these discussions like, why do you need to run a build before you publish? Or what, why do you need to have verification? Or why should you automate the, the running the tests when you can run them locally? And same thing is happening now where uh, like zero trust is what you mentioned, it's not something you deploy as a concept. Like it's it's a culture, but like a process kind of thing. It's something that you need to embrace in terms of how you work and how you see your environments, technical environments, and like the software side of your companies as well. Um, but it's it's more about realizing a way of working and a way of deploying things and a way of protecting things, as opposed to well, deploy this one thing and then you have zero trust achieved. Uh, because it's not really that easy. So it's definitely a mind shift in how you should think about it. And like we do shift left with security to like find security threats earlier in the life cycle to run code security tests for developers on their own machines and then on the build system and then run production scans for code vulnerabilities as well. So you kind of discover things earlier on in the process as opposed to just run it on the production build or the production system. We see the same with Zero Trust now, where in the early days of Zero Trust or the relevant guidance that is now named Zero Trust, a lot of discussions were, let's go to the cloud first, let's make sure everything is running, then think about how we can protect it, and then think about how we can secure everything when it's up and running. Like, how do we tighten the ship and, and really make sure we don't have any loose bolts uh, running around here? Um, so I think that's also like a mind shift that we need to embrace. This is no longer an afterthought. Anything security cannot be an afterthought. You have to have this as part of your process from day one. And, and it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to implement all the guardrails from day one, but you have to think about them and consider how at scale and how when you go live into production, how do you want to achieve this? And in doing so, you can realize how you can achieve the same thing across your dev and QA and, and testing environments, which is really ideal because you want to be testing 
in the same type of environment that you have in your production environment. So it's definitely a mind shift. It's definitely like an internal kind of culture thing where you have a guidance on how to do things as opposed to, hey, let's deploy zero trust and we're good. It's, it's not like something you enable and then you get a better secure score in Azure. So I, I like this point of view, like treat it as a guidance, treat it as like a cultural shift, if you will, inside of the organization, if you have not already, and, and really educate everyone across all levels in your organization about why zero trust is important, why everyone needs to be involved. And like I always say with all the customers I used to work with and my, my colleagues, you know, security is always a shared responsibility and it's not the security team or the IT team or like the, the CISO that is responsible for making sure all the security works. They might be accountable for ensuring that you have security in place and that you have the, the guides and the rule books and that you have some kind of tangible approach to zero trust. But it's the responsibility of everyone in the organization to ensure that we try to live after those kind of guidelines and rules. Excellent insights. The, the last lesson, and then we have some additional thoughts on this, but the last lesson, lesson number three, is that for a lot of scenarios where you have an environment, perhaps a company, that has decided to go to zero trust, often the question might be, so how long will this take us? Will this be a 10-day project? Will this be a one-year engagement? What, what's the expectation? How much should we allocate our resources and funds for this. And while I do not have an exact answer, what I'm seeing now, it's at least six months easily. And this is for almost any sized companies. Not because the technical bits would be immensely complex to deploy, but you need to design, you need to test, you need to train the employees. You also need to ensure that the plan is solid. So perhaps, Microsoft already envisioned this as well. What they have as part of the Zero Trust framework that they have, they have something called RAMP, Rapid Modernization Plan. And this is perhaps half of the Zero Trust implementation, but with the idea that let's try to get quick wins rapidly without a massive deployment and a project and a lot of work required. So RAMP, is a three-step project that touches upon each of the core zero trust requirements and, and, and guidance. And it focuses more on identities and endpoints. So you can imagine it's Defender for Endpoint, Intune, Azure AD, Conditional Access, MFA Authentication Strengths, Defender for Cloud, and so on. So I can highly recommend this, especially if you have perhaps a legacy environment or perhaps an environment with a lot of things in Azure, a lot of things in M365, a lot of things in on-premises, and you know this will take years to fix, but is there something we could rapidly do now to buy us a little bit more time to then really tackle the rest? I really like RAMP. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll put the link in the show notes. Toby, any, any thoughts on this? I, I do have a few thoughts on that. And so like RAMP, I'm not that intimately familiar with it. I've come across it, but never really had a chance to work with it. But it, it reminds me on like here, focus on the quick wins and like securing your identities and whatever it is. It reminds me of the mantra that we always have. And that I think we've mentioned a couple of times already, it's better to get started than not start at all. Even if that means starting small, even if it means you don't have a complete solution from day one, if you're moving the needle on security and you're trying your best 
to do what you can today with the resources and time available and, and the knowledge available, do it. You know, just get started. And that is more important than trying to figure out, like if you're already in production and you sit down and try to figure out a, a strategy and build a plan for how you want to roll this out. And if that takes half a year before you start taking any type of action, then you failed, right? And it doesn't mean that you're gonna get hacked. It doesn't mean that you're gonna be compromised, but we go back to assuming that your network is already compromised and that you assume breach. It's pretty likely that you want to start enabling as many services and peripheral kind of network, perimeter network security tools as you can. Uh, enable and secure identities and like all of these things that can be quick wins and that you can fairly easily get started with. Make sure you do them and document them or just even if it's a bullet point in an Excel file or, or a PowerPoint presentation saying, hey, we want to achieve zero trust. This is what we've done so far. Maybe there's only one point on that list, but it's better to have one point than no points at all. So this is not like a zero sum game where you have to achieve and collect all the points in order to win. You just need to move the needle and make sure that you do this continuously. Because one thing that I know from working a lot with securing um, you know, the digital estate is you will never be finished. There is no such thing as a security project that has a start and a finish, and then you never have to tend to it again. There's always a security program or a continuous security journey, and you're going to be on it forever. And, and that's kind of the viewpoint and the horizon you need to have that we can make efforts as part of a project. Those efforts tie into the long horizon. As long as you're in the cloud, as long as you have something running, you have this on the ballpark. This will never be finished. So I think that's a, like to tie it back to the lesson there that you said, the ramp model and uh, focusing on the quick wins. Make sure you do that. Like Really embrace that advice and, and the lessons from the field here. S get started and, and make sure you get those quick wins. Write them down and then you can start strategizing and making plans for the future. I really love love this this take. A couple of other additional thoughts on this, and, and one being passwordless and security keys. So you mentioned FIDO2 hardware tokens. So they quite quickly come into play here. And passwordless, obviously, for users, it's super convenient. Typically, what I'm seeing as the sort of uh, target state for passwordless in a corporate environment is Windows Hello for Business for those devices that support it, meaning Windows laptops and workstations, and Microsoft Authenticator, meaning you have a smartphone and we can actually deploy that and we can enforce certain capabilities. But then for critical admin accounts, any high privilege accounts, uh, a hardware security key is the most secure solution. So I carry a couple of FIDO2 USB tokens. I use them frequently, but at the same time, they're part of my physical keychain. And if I'm back at home where we normally record, my, my PC is a workstation and, and it's, it's on the floor next to my table. And if I need to plug it in, I need to crawl underneath the table, plug in the whole keychain with the USB <laughs> stick, and I will forget it there. Then when I come back, I'm thinking, where's the key? Did somebody take it from me? No, no, it's behind the server. So it's a bit cumbersome, but that's why I often often feel it's best for admin accounts, not for end users. Mm -hmm. But for example, uh, Windows Hello for Business, that's something you can simply say, use your fingerprint, use your, your face to authenticate. We're good to go. And nobody's thinking about zero trust. They're just thinking, well, this is so convenient. And that's how it should be. Yeah. 
And, and one take there on the security keys, and that's good to know. I had a conversation recently where someone said, well, it feels like security keys are vastly insecure because if someone picks it up, they can just plug it in, which is true for some security keys, mm -hmm. but there are security keys that also require your fingerprint. So they have biometrics built in. So you're required to have the actual physical key and your fingerprint at the same time. So there is even an extra layer of security that you can use with security keys. And, and I just wanted to mention that because several times people, even here at the conference, we talked about um, uh, passwordless today with, with a, a couple of people and they came, one of them said, well, we tried to do that with our company, but people just left the, the keys on their machines, their laptops in the open landscape and anyone could just go and touch it and it unlocked whatever it needed to unlock. Yeah. And then I realized, okay, that's a big problem. And I just gave them a link saying, hey, here's the keys that requires your fingerprint or something else yeah. as well. So there is an extra layer there if you're concerned about the, like losing your key or if someone else should gain access to that key. So there is, there's that option as well. Yeah, and you can also enforce a pin on top of the key. So when you plug in the USB key, it will prompt you for a pin number. Mm. You first use that one, then perhaps a fingerprint on top of this. So you first unlock the key, then you use that to authenticate further on. I like the security key aspect, but for me, I'm using Windows Hello for business for everything I need to do through the laptop. And I'm using Microsoft Authenticator on top of this. These two are so convenient in terms of passwordless that the security key I've left that mostly for the global admin account, the mm. break glass accounts, if you will. Okay, uh, another thought, and this is perhaps just a pointer. The Department of Defense this July in 2022, they released their thinking around zero trust. And it's about 200 pages. It looks dry when you download the PDF. We'll put the link in the show notes. But it has super deep guidance on what you should be doing, what you shouldn't be doing. So if you want to get sort of the, the enterprise approach to zero trust, the DOD guidance is probably the most vast collection of guidance from top to bottom on all aspects of securing your services, networks, applications, identities, and endpoints. And that is probably the one that I will be opening frequently to get inspiration on how should we do this, how should we do that. I think that makes sense. And there's something that comes to mind, and I, I, I think we talked about that at some point in an episode as well, which is the MCRA. And I think that ties in well with this guidance as well, because the DOD guidance is like a guidance on zero trust. And then the MCRA is specifically, if you're in the Microsoft ecosystem, then here's all the things you can do, including zero trust. So there's like a tangible guidance from the MCRA that you can tie back to the DOD guidance and say, this is how the DOD recommends you think about zero trust. And then you can use the MCRA to say, this is how you can achieve that using the Microsoft technologies you're using today. Uh, so I really like, like the combination of these things and like the guidance you can get from that. We'll definitely add all of the resources that we'll be mentioning in the show notes because my, my head is buzzing with ideas on what I could link in here. So beyond these insights and the lessons learned during this year, I have a couple of open questions or considerations not, not to Toby, but in general, on having worked with customers on zero trust. The projects typically are not that somebody would call me and say, you see, show up here at nine o'clock, let's do zero trust, and you can go home for dinner once you're done. <laughs> no, it's not about that. It's about understanding what do we have now? What's our security 
posture and what do we need to do and in what order and what licenses and what products and how do we ensure and how do we do reporting. So in that sense, everything you have in Azure already and in M365, they tie back in to the broad idea of zero trust. But even then, two open questions. I have some ideas for these, but the Microsoft guidance is perhaps a bit lacking on this. One, what about on-premises and zero trust? Yes, we can enforce Azure AD-based authentication on things. But then you have the local Active Directory, you have the domain admin, opening command prompt, the old school CMD, not Windows Terminal, and trying to use NetUse to map a network drive. Where's zero trust there? Mm -hmm. You don't really have for identity anymore. And obviously the network security is a different thing. But also you typically do not secure that with Microsoft solutions. You secure that with hardware and additional network gear. The other one is multi-cloud. How do we do zero trust when we exit our tenants and go to AWS or Google Cloud or some open hosting service? And mm -hmm. I don't have the answers to all of these because, again, it depends on what you want to achieve. And zero trust in that sense gives you clear guidance but it doesn't at all times, it doesn't give you the exact solution on how you want to achieve this. I, I think that's great. Like these are great questions. And I love the one on on-premises and zero trust because exactly what you say, we talk about the cloud. I mean, I've been living in the cloud for a long time. It's the only thing I've done. I have not touched an on-prem environment for a long time. And I'm happy for it, right? I, I love the cloud, but there's a lot of organizations, a lot of former customers of mine, they're still running you know, big enterprise on-prem data centers and solutions. So that's a very valid point. How do you bring that guidance back? And I know that, you know, a lot of the layers of this guidance can be directly applied to on-prem as well, because it's about perimeter security. It's about securing your identities. Like you said, you can use um, AAD or, or AD. You can, you know, enable protection on those. You can have the endpoint in and, and, and your whatever firewalls you deploy. But how do you take that one step further and ensure that everything is really locked down. I'm not sure there is the same level of guidance on that, but that's a great question. So I also don't have the answer to that because I haven't worked on-prem for a long time. And like I said, I'm super happy to stay in the cloud. And there are people who's vastly uh, skilled at working you know, with these on-prem networks. Um, and the other one being multi-cloud that you mentioned, that's also a great point. And we today when we spoke, um, to a couple of people about passwordless and like the, using the keys and the lack of fingerprints or whatever, like the second layer they were missing. We also talked about multi-cloud, not from the sense of a zero trust perspective, but multi-cloud in general and data sovereignty. Like how do you protect the data if you have purview and whatever you might have, DLP, some data uh, policies for, for the documents you have and whatever you have deployed inside of Azure. But then some of that stuff leaves your Azure tenant and Microsoft 365 and goes to AWS or to Google, which is not a bad thing because they're operating a multi-cloud environment. So that's expected. They are pulling the data from one system to the other to process and to do things and to deliver to a different set of their customers. But how do you apply the concept of zero trust? Very valid question. Again, I don't have the answer other than apply zero trust across all the environments. Right? Yeah. So if you have Google, GCP or whatever they call these days, the Google Cloud, apply zero trust on that environment. Do the same in Azure, do the same in AWS, wherever you go. But then I'm not sure if you have to have like an additional bridge or step between them because the data will flow from one system to the other. And how do you make sure it's protected along the way? 
other than the typical stuff like encryption and, and SSL and ensuring that it's protected in transit. I don't know if there's anything else you need to consider, but very relevant to the discussion I had today with some of the former customers and, and individuals working with pretty big companies. So I don't have the answer to that question either, but I think that's a relevant question. I think we'll put these questions in the show notes. So if you are tuning into this and you are in a situation like that, we'd love to hear your considerations on how you see this, if you've worked with it, or if you have additional concerns around how to apply or how to think about zero trust in your specific scenario. Because I'm, I'm pretty sure we can create quite a few episodes drilling into each aspect of zero trust at some point because there's a lot of things we can cover. And right now, this is super high level. This is just like from the from the top down, a couple of observations from the last year working with Zero Trust, especially on UCI, side, you work with a lot of customers on on security and, and Zero Trust in particular. And we'd just love to hear more. Like, what are the challenges with embracing Zero Trust? Do you have cultural blocks inside of the company? Do you have people fighting against doing this, which is... Uh, very common, right? If you have someone who's a CISO, then you know might have a different viewpoint from the CTO who want to develop new stuff and just roll things out. Then you have the CIO and the CISO who who may want to rather protect the assets you already have than to reinvent new things or invent new things. And you know this is something I have a lot of experience with, where these discussions can kind of clash. So there's uh, also like the political game inside of most organizations, and how can you embrace this and ensure that everyone uh, see that this is the benefit for their own team, for their own, like coming back to the shared responsibility for security. How do you make sure in your organization that everyone is aware of the responsibility they have to drive security for your entire organization? Because again, not a single team, not a single individual can be responsible for doing it. They can be accountable for ensuring that it gets done and that there is a plan and that you follow up on that plan and that you achieve the goals but everyone is responsible for achieving that together. Really good thoughts. You mentioned on-premises, let's not dive deeper into that during this episode, but I'm a huge proponent of believing on-premises will be a big thing in the future, let's hope. <laughs> and one of the things that I did about six months ago, I have a couple of servers at home, running Windows Server, one is running Linux, and I went full passwordless on the internal network. It works beautifully until you need to RDP to one of the servers. Hmm. You cannot RDP without a password. So that's that. Uh, okay, really good stuff. Uh, I think that's all we have for Zero Trust today. We do have the unexpected question. And based on my bookkeeping, Toby, this week it's your turn to ask me the unexpected question. Okay, so here's a question. And I came to think about this one because we're staying at, at a hotel now for the conference in Copenhagen. And something was bugging me. And like, this is a question that I think a lot of people can relate to. It's not a big question of life or in life, but I'm pretty sure a lot of people thought about this at some point. Toilet paper, over or under, and why? Great question. Super easy answer. <laughs> it needs to be over. There's no other option. But with a slight optimization, when it's over, you need to fold the end of the toilet paper to a small arrow like they do at the hotel. You need to do this at home as well. It, it makes you feel when you enter the bathroom, <laughs> it, it, it feels like this is so... Well, welcome, so, you see. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So over, definitely, but do the small, small uh, arrow thingy, you know what I'm talking mm -hmm. about. And then 
whoever visits the bathroom next, they go, oh, they, they probably have a cleaner here because it looks like we're in a hotel now. Yeah. Okay, so that, that's actually a, a great answer. It's the right answer, obviously. Obviously. Because if, if you say under, then yeah, that's not the right answer anyway. But I found there's a patent and that was floating around for okay. the toilet paper holder thing where the toilet paper is over, right? The design on the patent has the toilet paper over. So wow. it is technically correct to say that. So valid answer. I don't know how truthful that patent is. It's been floating around the internet for at least 10 years, but it is an important question in life yes. that I think we need to figure out. And I'm happy that we are on the same page here. Agreed. Um, so whoever's tuning in, over or under and why, let us know on Twitter. Cool stuff. Thank you for tuning in. We'll have a fresh episode for you again next week on Wednesday. Bye-bye. See you then.